Hello, Shakes Pals. Happy Throwdown Thursday. This week, we've got something really special. We have four amazing folks who have come on to talk about their most magical stage moment, either something that they have directed or something that they want to direct, just something in Shakespeare that makes them go, ooh, wow, yeah, that's magic. Uh, That's not a direct quote from everyone, but it is the general vibe that I got from everyone. So thank you so much to Marshall and Deb and Hannah and Ben for coming on and chatting with me. This is a really fun kind of uh, four-person fight, I guess, Uh, but two of them are the same. I guess we, I don't know. We'll figure it out on Twitter. Um, congratulations to Alexander for, I don't, I'm assuming they won last week. I'm recording this actually the same day that that episode on Movie Magic came out because I'm going to be away next week. So I'm just, you know, assuming that Alexander won with Scotland PA because that movie is so good. How could it not win? Uh, much love to David Tennant's Hamlet as well, but mostly love to Alexander for coming on and chatting with me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I am excited about this. We've got one more magical episode coming this season and then you know we're switching things up as always thank you for your support tell a friend i love you goodbye welcome to protest too much a shakespeare showdown podcast where a guest and i go head to head each week and you get to decide who wins Okay, so right now we have got director, podcaster, teacher, Marshall B. Garrett. Marshall, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Steph. I'm really happy to be here. Go ahead and let everyone know a little bit about what you do and where they can find you. Sure. So I'm, I guess, a freelance, all the things you just said, uh, based kind of in the Baltimore area, um, but that sounds a little more urban than where I really live. But um, I kind of bounce around... Um, I've done a lot in, of freelance directing work for like, I call them like the ASC babies, but like all the Mary Baldwin founded companies, yep. Hooser Shakes and and Sweet Tea and places like that. I bounce around those whenever possible. Um, I've popped my own in from time to time. Um, but if somebody's looking to catch something that I'm doing, I'll be doing Pericles down at Sweet Tea Shakespeare in um, in Fayetteville, North Carolina this summer. Interesting. Okay. Um, I I would love to talk to you about Pericles, but... Oh, we'll be talking about Pericles. Oh, okay. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say it's so like rarely like there. I have, I have some problems with act one of Pericles. Uh, sure. The rest of the play I'm cool with. So <laughs> it, it is. I, I'm not going to claim that it's the best play in Shakespeare, but it is my favorite play in Shakespeare. I like um, that. So I like that a lot. Um, All right, so let's talk about magic and staging. Obviously, you have directing experience. So what for you, whether it's something that you have directed in this way or something that you are, it's like your dream direction, um, what do you think is the most magical moment in Shakespeare to put on stage? Uh, So I've already tipped my hand a little bit because it is in Pericles. Um, And at the very end of the play... um, Pericles has, you know, Pericles has a rough go of it in that play. You know, every time he steps on a boat, it sinks. Um, he he loses, you know, his entire family. He's definitely got, you know, if you don't know that, like, nobody's actually died, 
Um, he's got maybe the most tragic story in the canon. You know, he loses his wife. He loses his daughter. Um, he trusts his best friend to take care of his daughter and then his wife murders her. Right. But, um, at the very end of the play, Diana, uh, puts him to sleep and, and there's this music of the spheres moment and he goes to Ephesus and he's told to sit and pray and just tell his story. And as he does, one of the nuns in the background turns out to be his lost wife, the last piece of his family that's been missing. And she comes forward and she faints. And he immediately, of course, thinks she's died because of course it's Pericles. That's what he thinks. Whenever a woman is asleep, that she's dead. Um, and, uh, everything gets put back together and he looks up at Diana and he says, um, no more, no more. Right. I, my heart cannot hold any more joy. Like he's had this awful tragic story. He's multiple times said that, you know, he's not going to cut his hair or his beard. He's, he's lost absolutely everything. And to get it all back in that way, so that his heart is almost bursting. And it, it feels to me like, you know, Lear dies of the broken heart at the end of his play. And it feels like Pericles is saying, no, please stop because I will die if anything else good happens to me right now. Uh, so for me, um, especially um, since I've become a dad myself, like that is something that um, just knocks me out. I like have, I have like goosebumps. Um, it's funny as you were, as you were talking through it, um, I dramaturg for uh, Comedy of Errors this spring in Austin, and I was just thinking about I hadn't really put that connection that like both of these tell your life story set in Ephesus have this like, hey, it was on a boat, lost everything in my life, uh, and that's my sad story, uh, kind of like monologue, and then with uh, the nun parallel as well it's yeah. kind of a, a fun link that i had never really thought of until you said it yeah i uh, likewise likewise i i don't spend a lot of time with comedy of errors and who does fully yeah well you clearly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you like when you stage that moment like wh how do you besides the fact that it's just like a, an overwhelmingly beautiful moment as it's written. Like, how mm -hmm. do you enhance that? How do you see it uh, without giving away your secrets? Uh <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So, and I wish I was ready with like the perfect answer right now. Um, I, I've directed it once with teenagers uh, at, at a summer camp and it was, it was a solid moment. And um Really, I what I think it needs to be is as much as Pericles is this really fun seafaring adventure, mm -hmm. um, and and it gets almost to the point of silliness with how many times boats sink. Um, really dialing in on seeing Pericles' tragedy over the course of it, and and letting the audience really feel his loss, letting the audience feel the loss that his wife and his daughter feel of him. Um, so that we're really invested in 
putting it all back together. And, you know, I I feel like we're afraid to stage plays, sadly, if they're not tragedies. And Mm -hmm. so, like, we need to let the play be sad, right? Yeah, it's all the pre-work rather than, so that moment is going to be what it is. But, like, if you've put in the work before it, then it'll be, it'll sink, yeah. Right, right, exactly. And and I think, um, you know, some of it has to do with how you how the gods exist in the play. Like, I think there's a big temptation in it to uh, double Diana either significantly or, or to have her on stage at that moment in some way. And I think, I think that's actually the trap, right? The trap is Mm -hmm. to, is to give his joy anywhere to go. Like if I can reference uh, a play that isn't, um, Shakespeare. Please uh, do. <laughs> uh, there's there's a play I really love uh, called The Women of Lockerbie, which is about the Lockerbie bombing in a like Greek tragedy style, and it talks about how um, if you're if if you bury your son in the sky, that it's too big to hold your grief. Um, and in a similar way, I think if Pericles is able to put his joy anywhere, it can't, or like then it can be contained. And his joy has to like go out into the entire audience because they're they need to amplify his joy, and they can only do that if they've had his sadness. Oh, I love that so much. Oh, that's so good. Um, okay, so the ending of Pericles uh, is your is your bid for most magical moment to stage. You did mention though that you had a kind of magical moment that you've seen that you wanted yeah. to chat about a little bit, and I'm excited to hear it. Um, so Cymbeline. Cymbeline. Oh, um, say no more. <laughs> yeah, please, Cymbeline. Um, say less, fam. <laughs> uh, so did you see Re- Rebecca Teichman's production in DC in, I think, 2011, 2012? I did not. Okay. Um, so uh, the other people I've talked to about this production have various feelings about it. Um, I loved it. I just loved it. Um, and one of the things that they did that Rebecca did with that production is she, um, replaced a lot of the like exposition characters with a, presumably a grandmother, but like an older woman talking to a young child. And, and they really amplified kind of the fairy tale thing of it. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting frame. You're making it accessible, whatever, whatever. Um, but then... We get to the end of the play, the battle has happened, they've actually killed almost every main character in the battle, which is not in the text, right? It's not in the text. Um, and Jupiter comes in, right, and saves the day. And as that moment happened, the kid who's been hearing the story gets up, takes the book from her grandmother, and, like, owns the story, and she brings everybody back to life. And, and so we're, it's the whole body of dead, you know, you know, a whole stage of dead bodies. Um, it's a, you know, million dollar production or whatever. So like it, yeah. it's beautiful. And, and there's a <laughs> lot of people who can be there just to be bodies. Um, and, and just this like moment of resurrection, this moment of rebirth that I think that sense is throughout that whole play, but this specific staging of it um, just unlocked it for me in, in a way that I've never forgotten. It's been what, 11 years since that production. And I, like, I get goosebumps even telling you that I might talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I think that's really fascinating because I think that one of my favorite things, and Cymbeline is my favorite play. So awesome. Just <laughs> Good get taste. that out of the way. Um, 
It is weird, but it is my favorite. And I think one of the things that I love so much about it is that it's just, it is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something so, there's something so like grim to Disney about that moment. Like you have these ancient versions of these fairy tales that are gruesome and and deadly and just really like yikes in some places. And the way that, um, you know, for good and for bad, the way that Disney has uh, magicked them into like happy endings. Right. It feels kind of like that, like this younger generation took control of it and like changed the ending and changed the changed the tone of it completely, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, my, my runner up for magical moment was when, when Imogen in that play says, you know, I've got two worlds by them and, and, you know, her, her putting the, yeah. Oh, Cymbeline. It's so, Cymbeline. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And, and I, I would argue that it's part and parcel, like it and Pericles have so much in common as far as that fairy tale thing. Like I, at one point was seriously considering stealing Rebecca Teichman's ending of, Cymbeline to use for Pericles for, for Diana and it just felt too concepty for where I'm doing it but yeah. yeah I think that I think that like Pericles Cymbeline needs a good director and there are some Shakespeare plays that I'm going to be honest with you if you've got good enough actors can kind of like direct themselves absolutely like, they just happen like you know yeah yeah the, the play is there it's pretty one you know one no there we know which ones we're talking about um, but Cymbeline needs focus and it needs editing and it needs like, like laser beam direction to like make it make sense, first of all. Right. And then right. to sing after that. But yeah, I remember so when cool. I was in it, we, we had to, we staged the last scene first and we spent like almost two weeks on the last scene, which was frustrating for me because I was caught in and so I was dead. Um, and I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was but- a guard. You know that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Clawton is like one of my favorite Shakespeare characters because he's Absolutely. such a big dumb dummy. <laughs> so much fun to play, but yeah. So so, um, but I think having that sense of like, where does this have to end? You know, we need to have these two worlds come back. We need to have the forgiveness. We need to end. If the last word is peace, then we need to not have peace from the beginning and desperately need it. So anyway. That's not what we're here to talk about, but let's talk about Cymbeline forever. (laughs) Honestly, like it's always going to come back to Cymbeline for me. Marshall, thank you so much for uh, for doing this, for being here. Let everyone know where they can find you. Um, I I feel like the probably the easiest place to find me is just on Twitter. Uh, My handle is uh, Marshall B, just the letter or not B. Again, just the letter. Um, Pun on my name and Shakespeare. Yeah, you can find me there. I usually tweet about what I'm doing. MarshallBGarrett.com is never updated, but also exists. Thank you so much. uh, And we will be back. All right. Okay. So up right now, we've got director, movement director, actor, and teacher, Hannah Kay. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself, what you do, and where they can find your work. Okay, well, um, I am American originally myself. I I, um, I went to university in Chicago, and um, even though I'm from Philadelphia, I've lived in like way too many cities. (laughs) I Um, (laughs) thought And then I, uh, after I graduated, I moved to Paris, and I lived there for three years. I worked as an assistant director 
um, and as a teacher and I went, I did a degree um, uh, at the Sorbonne as you do. And then I then <laughs> I decided to move to London to go to drama school. And I got into drama center, both for acting and directing, but it was all very political. And I, I ended up on the directing course at drama center. And, but what, at drama center, it's about, it's, it's spl- the directing course at the time was about a year and a half of the acting course plus directing got it um because so it's very kind of like it the the course was designed to be very actor focused and and that as direct directors we had to absolutely understand the (laughs) you know the process of the actor and the the pain and insecurity and misery (laughs) of the actor um so and we had to go through that firsthand um <laughs> so, so I did all that and then um and then when I left uh drama center I started working um started directing shows in drama schools so I worked in um uh, uh various other schools I worked at Italia Conti and these 15 um and then I started becoming more and more interested in in um uh, movement work like drama center I don't know if you know does um uh, well, it sort of has this sort of specialty in um, character analysis, movement psychology. It's this very strange kind of uh, skill set that it's got um, that sort of combines um, lab and movement analysis with union psychology. Um, and it's it's actually it's very cool, but it's very, very technical. And we we did it full on for two years, four four days a week, an hour and a half. Um, every day it's it's very 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 full-on and it's amazing but it's not very accessible if you haven't gone to drama center and if you haven't got all that time to give and so what I one of the reasons I went to then to to do this to do an MA which is what I'm leading to is I did an MA at Central um, Central School of Speech and Drama or I think they've royaled themselves now so they're Royal Central School of Speech and Drama um, is that uh, to to work on to have a um, a language as a movement director to um, make that um, work kind of accessible to everybody is um, even if they hadn't gone to to drama center. And that's amazing. So yeah, so that's kind of what I've done, and then and then I've specialized in basically in doing in um, in. Uh, kind of in in Lobin and Shakespeare and in doing in how do you bring together the kind of Lobin movement language and um, um, embodiment and physicality into Shakespeare's language. That's really cool. And, and the and kind of the other way around as well. Like how do you how do you take Shakespeare's language and physicalize it? Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. Okay, um, so Hannah, I I'm fascinated to hear, especially with your background and how much you've done and how many places that you've worked. Hmm. Uh, what do you think is the most magical moment in a Shakespeare play to stage? Well, my absolute favorite, and the first thing that I thought of when um, you messaged that question was um, in the Winter's Tale when um, the um, Hermione's transformation from a statue back into 
human. And why I love that moment is because it is magical, even though it's probably not. (laughs) That That even though there's all these hints that, you know, that she's just been in hiding or that, you know, so um, that, um, you know, Hermione isn't, hasn't really been transformed into a statue for 16 years. Um, and there's all of, you know, Pauline is doing all of this vamping and all of this kind of like, you know, Leontes goes, she didn't have those wrinkles. She goes, um, well, that's just how clever the artist is. He just, you know, invented what she would look like after all this time. And it it almost looks like she's breathing. Yes, it's a very good, very good sculptor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And all of of that. And so that that, you know, and in a number of productions that usually kind of gets a laugh and it challenges that, you know, that, that suspension of disbelief. And yet, that speech when Paulina goes, you know, music awake her, strike, you know, it does require you, you do awake your faith. And then she does this whole list of things. Tis time to send me stone no more approach. Strike all that look upon with marble, marvel come. Um, it's she, this list of things. It's still should give you chills it's still magical and it's that I know Terry Pratchett has said this but I know that I think some other other people have said as well it's sort of it's still magic even if you know how it's done I love that yeah (laughs) when you're when you're staging this scene from a movement perspective it is a it's a pretty lengthy uh time for an actor to stand very very still how do you approach like that element of this scene well I have done it before um and you know part of it is it's finding you have to find a position that the you know that the the actor (laughs) can hold but that also still looks roughly like a statue Mm -hmm. so you normally have um her kind of uh twisted kind of kind of like twisted down and with her head away so that she can she's not you know you can't hold your arms up because you'd start shaking yeah um I can't hold my arms up to do my hair for more than 30 seconds so (laughs) yeah exactly um and I think some productions have done it where she's sort of leaning on something or whatever I mean one thing that I mean I when I did it I didn't really have a very big budget Mm -hmm. um but I would love to do it um with mirrors so that you have um so that the whole time they are looking at the reflection or numerous reflections and so that when they're trying to like reach out and touch like they they it's the reflection they're going through their you know it's not real that's so, so cool. She actually, come when she actually comes to life, she'll enter from someplace unexpected, and that because what you want hopefully is to get a gasp. That's mm-hmm. the thing that you you know from the audience. That even though the audience knows, they know, they know it's the actress. They know it's you know they know she's alive. They know she's not a statue. You still want it to be 
you know, you, you want it to be magic. And I think if you look at, and this is, I'm such a nerd here, but if, if you look at like anthropology and the, um, uh, what is required, because so, when, when they, when in the, in the early, um, early 20th century, the sort of very founders of anthropology and sociology um, laid out structure and, and sort of a theory for what, what would constitute magic um, and what would constitute magic within a, within sort of different communities. And they studied all of these different communities all over the world. And then, and, and then kind of, um, and uh, came up with these sort of theories and structures. This is um, Marcel Mauss and, and Levi Strauss and also um, James um, George Fraser. Um, and so if you look at that, this moment in the winter's tale absolutely counts because of things like the music, you have a priest, you know, a priestess like yeah. Lina, you have the transformation of one object, of one substance into another. You have magic words. You have the participation of the um, congregants, as well as you know potential participation of the audience. You have um, belief, but also the fact that belief isn't necessary. That's so cool. It is. That's fascinating. I find it really, really, <laughs> really interesting. And I think that it it it's it's the um, the more that I looked at it at that sort of. Um, list I think it's quite helpful because then you can there are things that you can add yeah because then there are there you know you hints things that aren't necessarily you know that Shakespeare doesn't necessarily give us so um but but also but the theater gives us like light and change of light or a magic object or another thing that which you get in um magic is is sympathetic magic so you have something like you have a small object that is the same as that performs stands in the stead of a large object so you could have like a small Hermione statue and then as well they perform the magic on the small Hermione statue and then that then you know creates the effect of the um, on the large Hermione um there's all kinds of things that you can do um it's very interesting so because i think this is this is about obviously you know shakespeare didn't read anthropology but it's <laughs> but the idea is that these are kind of like universal principles of um of magic that's really cool hannah thank you for uh being here thank you for sharing that and uh, that kind of definition into what constitutes magic and and having like a little checklist that you can go through uh I feel like opens up this topic uh, and now I'm like thinking about all of the other different moments and like how they uh how they check on that list that was that was really fun and interesting thank you so much Ooh, my pleasure go ahead and let everyone know where they can find your work uh, well, uh, probably follow my um, Twitter feed at the moment, um, which is um, at Hannah K1564. Uh, um, probably recognize that date. Um, and um, there I will post 
uh, uh, things, um, anything that is coming up. My uh, theater company is called Chameleon's Dish, quote from Hamlet. Um, we haven't done much in a while, but we did do a production in um, called The Hamlet Project um, in Edinburgh a number of years ago, which transferred to the Arcola in London, and then also did um, um, the uh, Othello Syndrome, which was, uh, again, a version of sort of feminist take on Othello. So hopefully we'll have more projects coming up soon. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing this. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Take care. All right. So right now I have director and Shakespeare scholar Deb Strusen. Deb, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I've been listening to you guys for a while and I'm excited to, to participate. So, yeah. Awesome. I, I'm also really excited for this one. Um, go ahead and let everyone know kind of what you do a little bit more about you and your best friend Shakespeare. Uh, well, I am a performance focused Shakespeare scholar. Um, so I my career is in the you know, field of college teaching and research and all of that. Um, but I'm also a passionate director who's, you know, occasionally actually gotten paid for that. Um, and uh, it's interesting because like you say, your best friend Shakespeare, and in a way that's true, but also like my best friend and I have a somewhat contentious relationship if my best friend is Shakespeare um, in that I don't know if Shakespeare should be Shakespeare in the sense that like, you know, he's like the big one in English and like, should he be the big one? Is he that much better than other people? I don't know. Maybe not. But I do like him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've all if you spend enough time, uh, you kind of go through that uh, like roller coaster of wanting to throw everything out the window and like looking at all of the other early modern work, even just even just other early modern playwrights and you're like, but look at this one. But then it's like, oh, but my home, my home world of <laughs> Billy Shakes. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it for sure. All right. So uh, you've directed a lot. What do you think, whether it's something that you have directed or that you have a dream direction of, what do you think is the most magical moment in Shakespeare? So uh, when you mentioned this as a topic, there was one that jumped to mind immediately and that I couldn't let go of, even though you told me that you guys had already talked about it in a different context. And I was like, no, this is the one. Um, and it's the statue scene in The Winner's Tale, um, which I have directed. And so you have this scene where Hermione has been dead or maybe not dead. Um, and, you know, there's something that's maybe a statue or maybe just a very still Hermione. And it comes to life, and, you know, if that is the case. And then, uh, you know, everybody's reunited. But this is a moment that kind of defies directing in a way. Um, so when I directed The Winner's Tale, I was pretty committed to the interpretation that Hermione has been alive the whole time, um, in part because she says, I have reserved myself to see the issue, which to me seems like a pretty straightforward statement that she was in fact alive. Um, and I also felt like, I think actors do better when they have like a, as much clarity of story as possible. So I wanted to give them like, this is what actually happened so that they could have a through line like a moment before and all this kind of stuff. And I wanted the audience to be really clear on that too. Um, so what I did was I staged it in as unambiguous a way as possible where what I had was um, at, at the beginning of that scene, um, Hermione and Polina walked in together 
And Paulina was carrying a pedestal sort of thing. It was really a step stool, but it was supposed to function as a pedestal um, and um, a low budget Shakespeare. So Paulina sets up the pedestal and she helps Hermione up onto it. And uh, Hermione was wearing a veil that, um, you know, because the statue's supposed to be covered. Um, Hermione was wearing a veil that Paulina adjusted and basically put into place. And then um, Hermione found a pose and basically held herself still as a statue. And so I was like, okay, well, we've, you know, I have clearly shown that Paulina is setting her up to be a statue and like that this is a living person who is statuizing herself for um, purposes of deception, basically. Um, but then, and this is something that I treasure because I rarely get to hear like unfiltered audience comments. Um, but I was sitting out in the audience um, as I usually do with those park shows. And I heard um, after the show, some people maybe college age or a little bit younger talking about it. And they were like, did the statue really come to life? No, I thought she was there the whole time. And I think it's, I think it's supposed to be unclear. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I tried to make a really clear choice and make it clear not only for the actors, but the audience. And they still had the same interpretive question that you have going into the play. It's like that structure, that question is built into the text. And even if you try to resolve it, you fail because it's part of the structure. And so the audience has that reaction of like, is it, you know, was that a statue coming to life? No, she was alive the whole time. No, I think it's supposed to be unclear. Like I, the, the words, I think it's supposed to be unclear. I was like, okay, Shakespeare, you've outwitted me this time. <laughs> That's really interesting, though. I love the idea. I got, like, goosebumps while you were talking uh, about uh, Paulina leading Hermione out. And to me, that we don't get to see that moment of friendship that has clearly lasted 16 years. Because I'm, I'm with you. I interpret it as she's been alive the whole time and just kind of, like, hanging out with Paulina, whose husband has also died in this process. So the two of them just kind of like hanging out together, uh, being a girl group and to <laughs> give to give her that moment of resolution with Paulina is really it's a really beautiful choice to me because the the rest of the play doesn't allow for any time for that. Yeah. And it's to me like it's kind of astonishing how good of an actor Paulina is as a person because she comes in and is like, Hermione is super dead and I hate you. You're a tyrant bastard. Mm -hmm. um, and like, if Hermione is known not to be super dead at that time, then like what an amazing acting job that Paulina does at that moment and continues to do for that whole, like that whole time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like she's, she's got this situation where like she lost her husband and the baby is gone and the aunties is like improving ish, but still not that great to deal with. And so like for safety's sake, she's keeping her mind mm -hmm. alive and it's a secret, but she's gotta be like interacting with court people that whole time and being like, yeah, it sure is too bad about Hermione and my husband. I miss them. Um, but Hermione's alive the whole time. Right. And needing to, needing to make sure that cause, uh, Cleon and, uh, the, the other one, Dion and Cleom, but the, the, you know, you know, the ones. Uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Um, they are like, you should get married. You should get married. It's time for you to get married. And so Paulina has to do that whole like, no, please don't. Like, you're a bad person. Remember that you can't marry anyone until you find exactly another Hermione. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's, and Paulina just has like such a strong personality. Like that's a role because I am also an actor. That's a role that I would love to play one day. Like I do Hermione, not uh, Sir Spare Your Threats, but the other one, I do Hermione for auditions because Sir Spare Your Threats is like the most like, oh my God, everyone does that. I'm sorry, actors, I love you, but don't do that monologue. Um, But uh, the other one- I have never heard someone use that for an audition ever in my life. (laughs) Wow, that's funny. Um, So, but the other one I do is- um, it's more metrically complicated and it starts in the middle of a, a line of a line of pentameter, which I think is one of the reasons people don't do it. It's also grammatically complicated, but that aside, right. I do Hermione for auditions sometimes because my type is a little more motherly, but like when I'm, I think Paulina is like even older than, than on the like sort of motherly um, age. And so like someday it would be fun to do Paulina. Yeah. I think one of the cool things uh, about Paulina is that I think you can read her as uh, maybe younger and more spirited. Obviously, she and Antigonus have been around court for a while, so they have to be aged a bit. But I think you've got an age range for that character that it's like, yeah, I could play I could play Paulina forever. uh, And that's really (laughs) true for that kind of character. Yeah. I mean, when I think of Paulina, I think of when... um, you know, in Slings and Arrows, when Ellen does that, um, the um, what study torments Tyrant has for me for her like tax professional. That's like what I think of as like the Paul. And, well, and also of course of my Paulina, um, Jen. But yeah, uh, it's just it's like it's it is a it's a flexible role age wise. I think, but I think of it as being a little bit older. Yeah. Um, Deb, that's awesome. I love that moment. Um, clearly, you'll hear in this episode a lot of love for that particular moment. I think the Winter t- Winter's Tale has gotten like a resurgence of appreciation in the past couple of years. I feel that way about Winter's Tale and Cymbeline together, that people mm-hmm. have started to like be a little bit more bold saying things like, yeah, Cymbeline's my favorite play. Can I share a weird distinction that I have? I would love Um so I have directed all four of the romances um, without having directed any of the major tragedies. So like I've never directed Mackers or Hamlet earlier or Othello, but I have directed um, all four of the romances, including Pericles, although that was for a Zoom production, but still. So like what a weird, like I wonder if there's anybody else who has directed all four of the romances before directing one of the major tragedies. I don't know. Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting question. Uh, P2M Pod on Twitter, hit us up if you have had that similar experience. Um, this episode is so has so much love for the romances. Uh, at this point in the episode, you've heard Pericles and Two Winters Taleses. So I'm excited <laughs> for what the next segment is going to hold. And Deb, let everyone know where they can find your work. Uh, let's see. You can find my work in uh, Shakespeare Bulletin in one of the 2019 issues. Um, you can find my work in, uh, well, you can find my, um, maybe not some of my better work at Admit Me Chorus on Twitter. That's my handle, Admit Me Chorus. Um, uh, currently, my display name is Early Modern Drama Needs More Beagles. Um, <laughs> and uh, there is a Rutledge book that I have a chapter in but I can't remember the name right now um so we'll link it (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right thank you so much for having me awesome thank you so much for being here okay so finally and not leastily last 
last but not least, I screwed that one up from the beginning. We've got actor, writer, and theater tech, Ben Cordes. Ben, welcome back, and thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm excited to be back for a second time. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and remind everyone a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Um, I am a longtime Shakespeare nerd, fell in love with it really at my first trip to Shakespeare's Globe, as so many people, I suppose, as do. As we do. <laughs> right. Um, I do a bunch of community theater here in the Boston area. Um, I've done a little bit of directing, a bunch of acting, uh, a bunch of acting in Shakespeare, which has been fun. But really, my first love is theater tech. I'm a lighting designer at heart. Um, yeah. So, you know, a little bit of everything. I feel like we, I do feel like we should do a whole episode on lighting design because I do that as well. And now you've got me thinking, but we're not oh, here yeah. to talk about that today. Um, okay. We're here to talk about, well, I guess it could tie into magic moments. So what do you think is the most magical moment in Shakespeare to put on stage? Mm. Okay. So I think the way I need to introduce this is to say that for me, the magic of Shakespeare is really in the verse. Like the way he tells stories about the human condition is borderline miraculous. Don't get me wrong, right? Even when it's reflecting the worst part of who we are as people. But the the moments that make me go, wow, in Shakespeare, whether I'm acting it or performing it or directing it, inevitably comes back to the prosody, how the actor chooses to scan the poetry or read the prose. Because emphasis is everything, right? You've probably played the game that actors play sometimes where you say the same sentence multiple times, but you put emphasis on a different word each time, right? So you take a sentence like, what are you doing? You say, what are you what? doing? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Right? Because it changes the meaning behind the words when you change the emphasis. Mm -hmm. With Shakespeare's text, we get so few hints, or at least so few direct hints about how to play it. It's not really any wonder people spend so much time diving through the text, picking out poetic forms, looking for rhymes or pauses or markers of rhythm, something they can use to guide their performance. So Giles Block, who was the text coach at Shakespeare's Globe for a long time, wrote a book about this. Ooh. And in it, he tells an anecdote about an actor. They were doing a production of Titus Andronicus. And the actor, in the middle of a rehearsal, threw off the regular pattern of the verse. And Block said, why did you do that there? And the actor says, because I think I can get a laugh. And that comment has always stuck with me, yeah. right? I mean, it's Titus. It's a dark comedy. Yeah. You got to find your moments, mm -hmm. but you can bring them out of the audience with the way that you choose to emphasize the meter. Not long after I read that book for the first time, I got cast as Demetrius in a performance of Midsummer. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say Demetrius in a performance of Titus. And I was like, oof, ooh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still a little cringy. Yeah. I have to admit, Midsummer's not my favorite show, but this was a really good cast and a really good crew. During dress rehearsals, we got to act three, scene two, where Puck drugs Demetrius with the love juice and Demetrius wakes up and he spots Helena. And of course he falls in love with her or, or back in love with her or whatever. And we did the scene. And after the rehearsal, the director came up to me and he said, you got to turn this up to 11. This is your chance to get the audience on your side because 
Demetrius is a dick. He's been really terrible so far. He's going to be worse as the show goes on. This scene can be really hilarious if you play it right. And it can set you up for the kind of turn at the end where he becomes a sympathetic character again. So I went home and I read through the text again. And this speech is four rhyming couplets because he's completely out of his gourd, right? He's drugged up on fairy love juice. He's desperately in love. And I was like, okay, what can I do with this? And I figured out how to break the rhythm. Instead of reading it in standard rhyming iambic pentameter, like an ultra sincere human might read it, I stole some of the speech patterns from the fairies and I re-scanned it in three in dactyls or anapests or whatever. I get them backwards, but I did it in, in three instead of in two. I also, you know, added a little bit of physical comedy. I was sort of scrambling across the floor on my knees, chasing as, yeah, Helena. As you do. As you do, right. But the thing is, the audiences ate it up. I get this huge reaction. People loved it. They thought it was hilarious. I found a way to turn it up to 11 by playing with the meter. And what that moment really drove home for me is that emphasis is everything. Yeah. Right. And this is why Shakespeare is so magical and why the poetry is so key. Because no matter how many times you watch Midsummer, no matter how many times you watch The Tempest, no matter how many times you watch Henry V, right? There are different humans playing the roles and different humans directing the performance every time. And they're going to make different choices. And even something as simple as how do I stand this line of verse? How do I, where do I put the emphasis in this sentence? How do I read this speech? is gonna change everything. And that's what keeps us reading and performing the same words over and over and over and over and over again, 400 years later. And that is magic. I love that so much. I love how how much, also how much uh, responsibility and choice that gives to an actor too, because I feel like when shows do no book work, like you're setting yourself up for <laughs> for a boring production. Right? Yeah, I mean for a that's fine the production, production that everyone sure, but that's the production everyone has seen a hundred times. Exactly, and so giving them the opportunity to really like, I think that's such a cool way to approach speeches. And I have never done that. I have, you know, as an actor, I've looked at. Um, like I've scanned and I've looked at lines and I do punctuation. Like I do all of those kind of classical editing, but I have, I'm, I always feel like, um, cause I work with a lot of non Shakespearean quote unquote actors, a lot of, you know, musical theater actors or, or regular play actors. And I'm just always blown away with what they can give the text that I can't because they're coming mm. at it from a totally modern sense and they're putting their modern emphasis on it. And I'm like, how have you unlocked that? Because I'm so rigid in my like, I've, I've studied this and I'm trying to make good choices, but I don't know how to break free. <laughs> well, this is, and this is the thing that I got from Blot's book too, is that he in some ways is very dogmatic in the way that he wants you to approach the text. But for me, this stuff is all about finding the nugget that works for you. Yeah. Right. 
everybody's got a different toolbox. They, you know, some people like to look at first folio punctuation. Some people like to combine the punctuation of a bunch of different modern editors and figure out which works best for them. You know, is it, do you read Shakespeare's punctuation because he was an actor writing for actors or do you write, do you read modern punctuation because editors are modern English speakers and it makes more sense to somebody who's speaking English in the modern era. You know, there's there's a hundred different ways to do this, but it's all about figuring, it's all about finding the stuff that's going to work for you as an actor, giving you something to latch onto, right? I don't, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. I want to be pragmatic about it. And if if standing verse doesn't work for you and it's not fun, then freaking don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if you can find hints for your performance, if you can find places where you can surprise the audience and get a laugh out of it. If you can find places where you can hit a particular empathic note that you're going for, then it's a huge win. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I, I love that approach so much. And I, yeah, I love that. I think that's perfect. Um, you also had a moment that with we were just talking about right before we started recording with stage direction that I've never actually paid attention to before. And I laughed my butt off because it's so great. Uh, so talk about that really quick. Okay, so there's the, the everybody knows the most famous stage direction in Shakespeare is exuant pursued by a bear, right? That's yep. the first one everyone thinks of. My second favorite <laughs> stage direction in Shakespeare is in The Tempest, when Ariel brings out the feast, and then you know, the king goes and eats and then there's a big thunderclap and the harpies come out. And the stage direction written in the text is through a quaint device, the banquet disappears or something like that. I forget, but quaint device is the piece. So like quaint I, device. I will just, we'll just let the stage manager deal with it. They'll figure it out. They'll do something. It'll be great. Thanks. Thanks, Willie. <laughs> I feel I, like I that's, how, that's just how theaters operate is like, oh, tech crew will figure it out. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. I was I was in a performance of Tempest and uh, I was playing King Alonzo and uh, the banquet was laid out on a tablecloth on a table behind me. And, you know, Ariel comes and gives the you are three men of sin speech. And at the end of it, we sort of froze in place. And then at the end of it, we were released. And I fell to my knees and I'm sobbing for my kid who's probably dead. And the harpies run past me grab the tablecloth, pick up all the food that's in the banquet, sort of bundle it up and then and run off. But they're running on either side of me. So we had to be very careful in rehearsal. It was like, okay, you got to duck, like really get down on the floor. Well, second night of performance, uh, the loaf of bread, which was three weeks stale at this point, oh, fell to the bottom of the tablecloth <laughs> and biffed me right in the back of the head. <laughs> It's like Valjean's uh, revenge, Javert's <laughs> revenge. Just <laughs> We're going to leave so, it there. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. And y'all have some uh, really great moments to choose from. So P2M Pod on Twitter, vote wisely, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs> Serious business.